We live in the golden age of like Marvel and DC movies, which really means more like Marvel movies. DC movies looks like they were made on iPhones. Um, I'm gonna be sad when that is shared if like Zack Snyder's sitting in the audience one day and they're like, there goes my tithe. And I'm like, oh, Aquaman was good. You know, it wasn't. This has nothing to do with my sermon. This is just a random thing I was thinking about. But what does have everything to do with my sermon is that both in Marvel movies and DC movies, the movie, right, from the comic books is really the exploration of how you got your superpowers and what your superpowers actually mean. We think it's about having the superpower, but really it's the bigger story of what made you unique to have that thing. So if you are a DC comic book movies and you're X-Men, the beauty of those stories is that it's a bunch of mutants in that society who don't fit in, which is a perfect story coming out of the 1960s and 1970s for the queer community or for people of color. That the story that the society tells you that you're not good enough to be something, actually you have a superpower that the rest of society needs to actually heal them and bring justice for them. Right? Every superhero has a unique story in that way. For Batman, you needed the billionaire who has everything and whose parents die to tell you a story that even if you have all of the power and all of the money in the world, bad things still might happen to you. And how do you make sense of that? And how do you deal with justice in the world when it doesn't feel like things can be just? All of the stories have a thing behind a thing behind a thing behind a thing. And then there's the discovery of that thing of your superpower and why you have it. Maybe you're a fan of Thor, right? His hammer has to be taken away from him for him to understand why his hammer is so important. If you're like, man, I've never seen a Marvel movie, I'm so sorry for the rest of this sermon. <laughs> but check them out, they're worth your time. The point of it is this though, that as human beings, we all have a superpower in some way that we're living into and that we're discovering. And what I love about whether it's a Marvel or DC movie or it's the Bible or it's your own life, the journey of life, the joy of life is the discovery of that thing, the discovery of the superpower that you actually have. Dan, that you're sitting here right now, this is not a part of my sermon, but I'm looking at your face, right? Your show, Missionary Positions, is the discovery of that. You lived in fundamentalist evangelicalism, right? And then you left that thing because, it, you know, it's that. Um, and then the show that you're telling the world now is your superpower and recognizing a deeper connection to spirituality. And I'm not going to ruin the rest of the show because you do it way better than me. But the point is, as I look around this room and as I know your stories, your stories are your superpowers. And what we discover and what we find out of ourselves is who we are and what we do with those things. So to talk about your superpowers, we're going to talk about some things. We're going to talk about megachurches in Bolivia because you know how those go together. And then if we can do that, then we're going to talk about some surrender and some surprise. And if we can talk about surrender and surprise, then we've got to talk about your narrative. And if we can do that, then Paul, Paul, and more Paul. Anybody like the Apostle Paul, by the way? <laughs> yeah, like four of us. If you read them, someone's like, this guy was an asshole, probably, <laughs> but wrote a lot of the Bible, so we kind of got to listen. You know, there's some things there, but we'll get to that. And then if you can do that, uh, then we're going to evolve beyond some things, and then we can, I think, name our superpowers and our own special ways. Follow along with me in Acts chapter nine. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest. 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Just real quick, set up what's going on here in the book of Acts, is that the early church, they're encountering Jesus in this really profound way. It's the most inclusive story of God that's taking place. It's this radical kingdom that Jesus is providing in this Roman empire, where whoever you are, whatever you look like, whatever background you come from, you have a place at this table in the kingdom of God, and you have something to offer, which was radically different than the message of empire, which said that certain people were more valuable than others. It wasn't a message of getting people to heaven. It was a message of bringing heaven to earth and creating a different kind of kingdom for how we live as human beings. There was a conservative religious majority of the time that did not want to see this more progressive, inclusive gospel be spread. I know this doesn't sound like today. I'm just saying it was back then. And this early church is trying to figure itself out because they have this radical story of who God is and Jesus is. And then there's this guy, Paul, who comes along, Saul at the time, and he wants to kill this early church out because like many of us, right, this is the story that when we're conserving something and protecting something as human beings, one of the paths that we lead to is that we end up killing or hurting people because they're going against an ideology that we believe in. So this is where Saul's at and where the early church is at, and so we'll keep going in the story. And he heard Damascus on his journey. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus. (laughs) I love that our community laughs from that. What's funny is I was going to make a joke about Straight Street, and I'm like, oh, it's too on the nose. But you all just laughed anyways. That's really funny. Hmm. That's good. I'm going to trust my gut next time and just go with Straight Street. So that's good. Trust that. And ask for a man from... That is not happening at other churches, by the way. And I think that that's really, really funny. Just everyone, like, couldn't keep it inside. That's nice. For he is praying. Yeah, I think we're on the next verse. Great. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, I love that, it's like Southern. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. The story of Saul turning into Paul is all of our stories in some way. It's a story of surrender and surprise. 
in our lives, we evolve or we discover our superpower generally not because we're looking for it or because we want it. We evolve almost always out of conflict because something happened to us. Sometimes we evolve and we have to surrender and we have phrases like, because I hit rock bottom or I had nothing left, right? A little come to Jesus moment. And then we have these moments where maybe it's not something that you did, but it's something that somebody did to you. It's a moment of betrayal. It's a moment of loss. It's a moment of suffering. It's a moment of grief. Unfortunately, this is how we grow as human beings, and this is how we learn some things. What's weird about that story is that's literally the story that's baked in, but much of the world that I grew up in church is I was told, if I did more of the Jesus stuff right, cause and effect would work itself out, and then nothing bad would happen to me. I was praying enough, I was doing enough things, and all of the things should go away. When the stories that were literally given is, reality is the, is, is the fact that things do happen to you. Bad things sometimes do take place. Suffering is part of what it means to be human. Change and loss is actually normal. The story is not your escape from those things, but how do you deal with those things so that you don't transmit your pain, but so that you transform it? This is the story that we live into. And so for the story of Saul, this is a moment where he surrenders all of the things that he has going on, and he literally has Jesus stop him somewhere. Now, for many of us, maybe Jesus didn't blind you and stop you on a road, but for many of us in this room, it has felt like that in some way, that you have come to these dark moments in life where you have nothing left and you call out to God. The other side of this is surprise. Sometimes when we've lived well and we've learned some things and we've given in to surrender and we said, my life is gonna be transformed in a different way, we go on a journey, I would say, of awakening and union mysticism, if you will, a deeper spirituality where we just begin to see the nuances of surprise that God is everywhere all of the time. That's way better, by the way. And generally, I would love to live here, but what life has taught me is that I am a real willful human being and I do not always surrender to the will of God, and oftentimes it's the more difficult choices that come my way. And the story of Saul is the story of all of us, that we find God and by finding God, we find our truth and our own superpower in moments of surrender or in moments of surprise. It was 2012, and it was a year that was transforming my life for a bunch of different reasons. At the time, I was working at another church. I was in my 20s. They gave me way too much responsibility than any 25-year-old should have at the time. I'm preaching like five services in front of thousands of people, and I thought that I was pretty hot shit, just so you know. And at the time, I was traveling around the country going to some of the world's largest megachurches in Texas and in the Pacific Northwest because we were getting ready to go multi-campus because that is what you do, my friends. And as we were getting ready to go multi-campus, I would meet with these executive pastors in these other churches, and we would talk about really important ministry things like, what is your lighting like and who built it for you? Um, where did you get that fantastic stage? And I would hear crazy answers like, well, we couldn't quite find the right lighting, and so we went to ESPN, and we found their system, and they were going to give it to us for $8 million, but instead we did it for 12 You get how this goes. And so then I found a stage one time. like, oh, that was, this, this is a really incredible stage. I'm like, yeah, well, we got it from the Department of Defense. It's an aircraft carrier stage, so it moves everything out so that when our pastor comes on stage, it's only him and the word of God. I'm like, all right, we're all making choices here is what I'm saying. <laughs> all right. Side note, I know that I'm shitting on other churches in some way, but I really do believe this. Hey, if you're choosing to give your money to that thing, and that's what you, if you want aircraft carrier stages, like, hey, that's your money. So, like, move on with your life. Anyways, this other 
the story is not about cynicism. The story for me was more about these were my priorities. And then for three summers in a row, I did what good evangelicals do. I would go to Bolivia to build churches, obviously. And in Bolivia, you get a taste of a different type of church that's not aircraft carrier stages, but there's a simplicity there. And there was a juxtaposition of those two things, of being in churches with $150 million budgets and being in churches that are literally being built from the sand and water around you where I had to ask questions for my own soul. That very same year, I meet Rob Bell, and he becomes a mentor of mine. And he leaves the church not because he abused anybody, cheated on anybody, or stole their money. He left the church because he was asking a radical question of what if God could reconcile all things? And the church says, he doesn't believe in hell. Kick him out. You get why. No one gets why, right? But he taught me to be a good man, not a great man. And that forever changed my life that I was in these moments of asking radically different questions for who I wanted to be and what I thought the church could be. So I left the big thing of a place that was paying me way too much money to be a pastor at 25 years old, and we started a thing in my living room where I was making like $16 in a Snickers bar every week. <laughs> and that place became this place, which I'm so grateful for, but for the first two years of starting New Abbey, I was depressed. Because all of my identity was how many services I preached in, how articulate could I could be, could I be that communicator, would Willow Creek ever invite me? That's what I wanted to know. And then I'm in a journey of just a couple people in my living room asking bigger questions about what inclusivity would look like. What would it look like to live in a world where my children see God and Jesus in a different way? Not because of the stage that they live on, but because when they look out, they see each and every one of you. They see your lives and what you represent. And that my kids ask questions and don't ask certain questions in the world because they see you. But for two years, I was depressed and I was low. And all of the things that I struggled with before in my life, all of my demons came back and I didn't know if I knew how to handle them. I began therapy in a new way and I began 12 steps in a different way. Because I realized I don't know how to cope with the world. And when things aren't shiny and big and fast, and I'm in Enneagram 3, and when I'm not doing for thousands of people every day, I don't know who I am. And even though I believe in this mission over here, which took me a long time to be like, no, this is good too, right? <laughs> it was hard, and it was a lot of years. And this was like years before there was like podcasts, and before anyone knew who Richard Rohr was. Like the liturgist was not even a thing, Right? And people are just like, oh, you're just like a bunch of weird heretics sitting in a room because you like maybe don't believe in hell or something like that. But it's like, no, no, that's not the story. The story is that there's a bigger God out there wanting to reclaim all things and that we believe that all people are made in the image of God. And if that's not the baseline for your beliefs, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, I thought your kids were still here and I had to turn around for a second. I really had a moment. I'm like, forgive me, Father, for I have never Small child, those will be his first words. I learned this from my pastor. Yeah. And that will be his voice. It'll be great. And that was a moment for me of surrender. Because I was ready to blow up my life. Because I didn't know what my identity was. And the journey that I had to go on is learning to see God in different ways. Needing the little scales to fall from my eyes. And needing God to show up in ways that I couldn't show up for myself. The second step of 12 steps is I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And what I had learned as a megachurch pastor in that world is, 
I have all of the power and all of the words and all of the articulation to keep things secret really well and to tell you things for your lives that I actually struggle with in my life. And I have a theology that tells you God's grace is for everybody, but you better not mess up because you're supposed to be perfect. And now I have a theology that says, no, you surrender to all of those things, and that's actually where God meets you. And the pain of those journeys is, is rough. But as you go through that, then you begin to open yourself up to surprise and surprise and more surprise. And that's the story of Paul. As he surrendered in these moments. But the rest of his journey is a story of continuing to surrender. And he always names it, right? He names, like, I have a thorn in my flesh and all these other things. It's in the rest of the journey if you read those letters. But it's also a journey of how does this story keep getting bigger and more interesting? So if we can open ourselves that our superpower is found in surrender and surprise, then the next thing that you need to do there is that your superpower is found in your unique narrative. You have a narrative that this world needs. You were just born into a family. You were born into a country. You were born into a certain place. Those were your friends. Those things happened to you. I don't have all of the answers for that, whether it's good, bad, or in the middle. This is just what is. My sponsor is the biggest atheist I know and the most faith-filled, faithful, full person that I know in my life because he accepts a higher power which is that reality is what it is he's not fighting reality he's accepting what's there and becoming willing and open to what God is doing even if he doesn't name that thing God in the same way that I do and so for us part of naming our narrative is naming what the reality is I know that you want some things to be different and I know you're grateful for some things but those are just the things so work with the building blocks that you have and then go from there. You spending time in a victimhood narrative forever that this isn't working out for you and if this would have happened and this narrative and all these things, it's, I promise you, just not going to help you at the end of the day. Now, it doesn't mean that those things might not be true. It might not mean that those things are not unfair. And it might not mean that those things are not unjust. But name those things and then use those things to tell your story from your vantage point in the world because we live in an incredible time in history where all of the stories are getting told finally. Praise God. So use your story for other people like you. Why I can walk into a 12-step room is because there's no explanation needed. Oh, I get that. And why you get to walk into any room that you're in for all of the unique things that make you you is that there's no explanation needed. And the more that you can name what is and what is reality for your actual story and stop fighting and blaming everyone else for why your story isn't what it is, the sooner that you can get to a place of using your story to begin to help and heal other people. And that's the interesting stuff. That's when our superpower really comes alive. Not when we feel entitled to our superpower and not when we're blaming everyone else for not giving us more superpowers. But just saying, this is who I am today and what I have to offer in this moment and that thing is good. Here's what I love about Paul. I think Paul's a weirdo, by the way, but here's what I love about Paul. <laughs> Imagine the story. He had so much zeal and hate in his heart for these other people that he was willing to kill them. And then this is the man, because of a full transformation, he took all of that passion and all of that anger and all of that hate, and he's the one who gave us theology that we are the body of Christ. He's the one that gave us theology that each and every one of us are the temples of God. He went from massive exclusivity to a wild inclusivity. And of course it had to be him. 
He had to take all of that energy and all of that passion and all of that zeal and now put it over here and say, for all of the reasons that I hated these people, there probably was something going on inside of himself. Man, I remember this moment radically in my own 12-step process of, oh, I don't trust people because I don't think that I'm trustworthy. I'm trying to control other people because I can't control me. Sometimes the greatest pains and hurts that we have going on isn't about everybody else, it's about me. And then we turn that around and we look at it on the other side and say, oh, the story of Paul is, oh my gosh, it's not that I hate these people, it's that there's so much beauty in them. And Paul gives us a theology and expands the church in a different way. Paul's the person who took the church out of Jerusalem. And you'll see this evolution in Paul. Paul has this radical moment with Jesus. It will say the word Jesus right here in these stories of Paul. But when you get into Paul's letters, he stops saying Jesus and he almost exclusively says Christ. Here's why. Paul knew this. If we keep it in Jerusalem and we all just sit in a circle and keep talking about that time that Jesus, you know, turned the water into wine and we were at Mary's house and it was all chill. Like, man, we were hungry. Fish everywhere. Like, this thing's not going to grow. So Paul never tells those stories again. Instead, he keeps telling the story of a universal Christ who has to evolve and expand and transcend and include this narrative over here. But it has to get bigger. It has to leave Jerusalem. We can keep talking about being Jews. We can keep talking about being this over here. But this story has to leave this place if it's going to change the entire world. And if it leaves this place, and if it evolves from this place, guess what that means for those people in Jerusalem? You're going to lose something. And that's okay. You're going to have to grow up and mature in a different way if you want your superpower to change the world. And so what Paul does is he begins to go other places and he's the one who gets into like a fight with the early church fathers and says, stop telling them to do kosher laws. Stop telling them that they need to be circumcised like you. Stop telling them to do whatever. And you need to accept the fact that God is already where they're at. And would you trust that if God did that for you, how much more can God do over here? And that's the journey for all of us as we discover our superpower. We take our unique story, and then eventually our unique story has to evolve beyond ourselves. So a question you have to ask yourself right now is, am I stuck in my story, and is my story only all about me? Is it only all about my healing? Is, I love this one in the liberal world. These are my boundaries, which sometimes is a way of saying I am selfish. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is. You have to analyze that with God, not me. But I'm dead serious. Sometimes we get stuck here because we have new language to preserve ourselves. That language is at its best when it heals you. And it gives you space because some other guy who looked like me was up on stage and telling you to volunteer more. Wink, wink. <laughs> and now you have some self-identity and you don't have to do everything said pastor says on stage. Great. And now you also have to go serve the world. You got to heal. And when you heal, you got to go take that person, take it to the other person that's in need. So you got to know your unique story, you got to know the places that you surrendered, and you got to know the places that you've been surprised. And you name, this is who I am, and this is what I've gone through, and this is my unique version of why I see the world this way. And now I've done some work for me. It's not perfect, it's not about being perfect, it's about healing and wholeness. Once I have a little bit of healing and wholeness, then I'm going to go travel and I'm going to take this, journey, this story other places, because other people need my story as well. The superpower of Paul was recognizing that all people are made in the image of God. 
And that superpower was his because he lived in a world where he hated other people because of the God that they believed in. My superpower that I ended up learning about me is vulnerability. I lived in a world where I didn't trust myself and inherently I thought that I was bad. And the story that has changed my life is slowly beginning to believe and learn that I'm actually good. And if I'm good, if at my core I have nothing to prove, if at my core I can be okay, then of course I must look other people in their eyes and tell them that you are good as well and that you are okay. And all of the narratives of shame that you were given about a very confusing God, a lot of one side of the mouth says, grace for all, but on the other side said, you better be perfect, that we can change that narrative. And I began to change that narrative. And I remember week three of New Abbey, it was a packed house, 16 people were there. <laughs> and I shared for the very first time about my unfaithfulness. How as a young man, as a whatever, before I was a pastor, these things had happened. I just was never able to share that in my other world. And I realized, oh, that's my superpower. What I'm modeling here is, oh, the journey is not about perfection. The journey is naming honestly where you're at. And I think more people are just craving that in the world of church. Because it's not about a new form of confession. It's about finally being known and being seen for all of your good and all of your bad and everything in between. That's the story that I've learned about myself, and I try to grow in that superpower every day and honor that thing in me. And New Abbey, what I love about this room looking around is I know that many of you are already just curating your superpowers. Mark Fields, you're the man creating Kinship Collective because you know how much a family of people has meant to you. And that you tell, you tell a beautiful story, not by telling your story, but by empowering other people to tell their stories and their voices. That is your superpower and your gift to the world. Brittany Barron, when I first met you, that you had to make a choice. Am I going to be a mega church pastor or am I going to get to love my wife and marry her? Surprise, you got to do both. <laughs> but what you've taught me is things that I just would have never known because I've never experienced. I remember years ago at New Abbey, I walked into the room and I told her I feel uncomfortable at my own church because I'm like the straight white man. That's like a bad word in our world. For straight white men, you get it. I'm sorry. Let's get over that too. You're worthy. And I'm dead serious about that. We all have to change our narratives. But you gave the most beautiful, kind speech to me, which was you're feeling uncomfortable for the first time and I felt uncomfortable my whole life. And you didn't say it with guilt, but you said it in such a beautiful and powerful way that I finally understood. I've never walked into a room uncomfortable. You lived in Aurora, Colorado, which was really close to where we both used to live, and you were like one of two black people, and you were uncomfortable living in a very white school. You were uncomfortable being a woman in ministry. You were uncomfortable being a queer black woman in ministry. That's your superpower, and you have lived your life the last seven years that I've known you telling that story, changing and transforming people's lives. I can look around the room and tell you all of your superpowers, and the goal of New Abbey is that we would be mirrors to one another that we would allow for a bigger story to take place within our hearts and to transform our lives, and that we would empower one another to go have our superpowers out in the world. So now, Abby, I believe in us. I believe in our stories. I believe in the ways that God is at work here. 
I believe that it's not just another liberal story of we're going to figure it out, we're going to get enough therapy, and we're going to do enough justice, and we're going to solve all things. Hey, we are going to make some action, but there's going to have to come a place in all of our lives where we came to believe that only a power greater than ourselves could return us to sanity. Only something bigger than ourselves could take the scales from our eyes and show us a more transformed world and what that might look like. So would we surrender and be open to surprise together? Would we allow all of our unique narratives to shine? And then once we understand who we are, once we've loved ourselves, can see the good in ourselves, once we can name all of that, would we allow our stories to evolve because we live in a city like Los Angeles that is in desperate need of this hope and this good news that is living within each and every one of you. So I'm thankful that you're here and I'm thankful that we get to do this work with one another. Would you find the same three or four people around you? Would you answer this question? What's your superpower? <laughs> Enjoy.